nothing I enjoy more than eating something that I've grown myself or eating something that was grown by someone I know who puts a lot of love into the soil and into the product that they get in the end. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. It happens this way more than you might think. It goes one of three ways. I tell people what I do, and they, one, glaze over and say, that's nice. Two, they perk up and ask me what I think might be wrong with their bean crop this season, and I glaze over and politely ask if they've Googled these symptoms. Or three, they perk up and begin to open. Really? I love to garden. I want to garden. I remember this garden when I was first, and then I really perk up. Because this is where the garden meets the gardener. This is the beginning of a gardener's story. And this is where both a garden and a gardener get good and interesting. This is how this story starts. I was working a volunteer shift a few years back, and when I came in, I was told my partner for the shift would be Daniel. He'd been in his job as music director at North State Public Radio for some time, and he was known for his love and knowledge of jazz and his resonant voice. We struck a gardening chord pretty quickly. He was moving, like the next day, to Kansas where gardening would be trickier. And then he began telling me about his mother and his grandmother from Louisiana. And then he was telling me about the beans. A week later, there was a packet in my mailbox, four tidy packages of rounded, colorful, dry beans and a handwritten note, black ink on yellow-lined notebook paper. All capitals. I have enclosed a few heirloom seeds from my ancestors in Louisiana, which include speckled butter beans, red zippers, black crowders, and field peas, all of which are fresh from this growing season, exclamation point. The zippers are prolific. The butter beans come in late, and the black crowders don't produce much, but they're so pretty. Let me know what you think. So I figured I would. We have Daniel. Teacher, student, writer, scholar of the African-American diaspora and jazz and rhythm and blues music, as well as avid home gardener, now in Puyallup, Washington, on the line. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Jen. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Doing just fine. Thank you for for, uh, allowing this space for me. This is fantastic. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about uh, gardening and music and both of those in your life. Tell me, uh, first, I would like a little bit of descriptive background on gardening and plants and horticulture as you grew up, these ancestors in Louisiana. Well, uh, my family have always been gardeners. Uh, I grew up next door to my grandparents who are from a little town called Cotton Valley in northern Louisiana. My grandfather was always a gardener. My father's mother as well was a prolific gardener in her own right. Uh, my dad's brother as well, a fantastic gardener. And we always did it just, uh, you know, it was, uh, it's less expensive to have a garden, and it also keeps you in touch with the land. And uh, that's something that was really important for my grandfather after, you know, 30 years in the military and we being raised in a fairly urban environment, he thought that we should have, uh, we should stay in touch with the land one way or another. So part of that was going back to Louisiana in the summers. And uh, one of the summers when we went back, this is in like 83 or 84, my grandmother's aunt had passed, and we were in there cleaning out the house. This is the house of my great-great-grandmother, Anne. 
And as we were cleaning out the house, we found these little, what were the size of baby food jars that had been sealed with cork and wax, and inside were little seeds. And uh, I found them and handed them to my mother, and she recognized her great-grandmother's handwriting on them. And she said, oh, I, I remember having these. These are called red zippers. And they were those little red zippers, those little red cowpeas. And there were also Jacob cow beans. There were creamers, crowders, speckled butter beans, and several others. And uh, we took them home, and we had been growing them ever since. And then every chance that I could, after I left my parents' house in the early 90s, I would grow them. And Chico being the most fantastic place in the world to garden because the soil is just so lovely, uh, I would grow them as often as I could and then share them with people because those seeds have been in my family at least 200 years. And uh, I also grow uh, a, a specific kind of garlic that I've gotten from my father's mother, who she got personally from her Dutch grandmother. And uh, there's also some onions as well that we've been growing. And I just love to spread them around because having a connection with the soil is absolutely important. And for, in particular for black people, for people who are the descendants of chattel or institutional enslavement, getting out of the South was a fantastic way to, to get to new opportunities for yourself and your children. But at the same time, people traded that upward mobility uh, at the expense of their, I guess, their, their relationship with the land. And that's something that I myself have tried to continue to, to maintain. I have cousins as well who are also fantastic gardeners, and we trade ideas about how to grow different things. And I think that's something that black people in particular, we really need to reacquaint ourselves with the land, particularly the things that, that were grown in West Africa, where we typically are from, that survived the trip over to the United States, melons, calabash, different types of cow peas, uh, rice, things of that nature, we really need to get back in touch with because everything that you put into the ground is going to come back out and then some. You just get these exponential returns. And for bee, gardening is a very beautiful therapeutic thing. That's something that I really, really love to do. There's nothing I enjoy more than eating something that I've grown myself or eating something that was grown by someone I know who puts a lot of love into the soil and into the product that they get in the end. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's such a lovely uh, connection, not only to the soil, but that community um, and um, family tree you just laid out for us uh, that comes down through uh, both the food that we eat and the plants that we grow and the soil that we live in is, um, it's pretty magical for, for anybody, for any community. Yes, and uh, it's clean it's healthy, it tastes very good, and it's good for your soul. And it's, that's one of the best gifts that you can give a child is the ability to grow food for themselves and to see value in that and to enjoy the process, to see it as a process rather than a destination like going to the grocery store and buying something under cellophane or in a can, knowing that you can grow it yourself. And it takes a little bit of time to grow, and then you can dry them, you can save them, you can do all different kinds of things, and then the idea of sharing. Like for me, when I grow things, 
it's important for me to grow something that I like that I can eat, but at the same time, I get just as much, if not more, joy out of giving it away to people mm-hmm. and seeing their face light up when, like, you did this, you grew this. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, I grew it. Yeah. And to, for them to come back later and say, even if they didn't like it, they will value that enough to where they'll give it the old college try and they'll let you know if they don't like it because not everyone likes everything, but but they will respect the process that it takes to grow things because it's a it's a slow and it's a slow process it can be and it's also a gamble because you have good years and bad years and i'm not always successful at what i do but people will take that seriously enough to sort of engage with it yeah and, uh, that's something that i really like and i've gotten a lot of converts over the years <laughs> and in your family uh on either side is the tradition of gardening specifically related to food-grown plants, you know, plants grown for food, or are there ornamentals as well? It's interesting because there's a – most of what I know about gardening comes from my mother and my grandfather and even my uncle, my father's brother, and they grow different types of foods. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started growing flowers, mm-hmm. ornamentals, and uh, – that was because when I was writing my dissertation, there was a little hummingbird who used to hang out right outside of my balcony. This is like five floors up, and he would fly all the way up there to get to the flowers that I had for my peas and whatnot. But I could tell when the when the flowers weren't blooming as much, he would sort of sit out on the wire and like scream at me all day. <laughs> and so I started growing nasturtium because, uh, and I had been growing them before because they are a nitrogen fixer. They attract aphids, and they're also edible, and the orange flowers are beautiful, and orange is my favorite color. So that was the first ornamental I ever grew. Came to find out that the hummingbirds loved the nasturtium, and so I started growing the nasturtium every year, and this little hummingbird would come back and guard his little territory all the time, and so I started growing them for him. And ever since then, I've grown a lot more flowers. The proportion is nowhere near the same as edibles, but uh, I do grow them more now. And you... The nasturtium is a, a perfect illustration of the fact that there are no hard and fast lines that ornamentals and edibles often cross over. And many of our, most of our edibles are very beautiful in their own way. This is true. Uh, the flowers for the red zippers are this beautiful, beautiful purple color. And uh, they grow really, really tall. And the, the pods are really long. They're just a really gorgeous plant. And when I was in Kansas, I didn't have much of a space for them to grow, except in what had been sort of a flower bed in front of a really large window that, was, that would face south in the front of the house. And so I just had them grow up a lattice all the way up to the eave. And uh, my neighbors were a little taken aback by it because they thought that it was a little strange when I first started doing it. But then once they saw the flowers come in and how fast and how beautiful and large and powerful these plants become, uh, they were really excited, so then they came over and asked for some pods. And so then the very next year, they all started growing them as well, and they're delicious as well. So, yeah, it, it tends to work out uh, with those, especially as well as the speckled butter beans. They have beautiful flowers as well. They come in late, but the the peas, the the the, the butter beans themselves are absolutely gorgeous. They look like they have been uh, they look like they've been hit with like a sort of a, a spackle, like they're white beans with little 
purple spackles all over them. <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous. I want to hear when you're going to plant these this year um, and give us some, some idea of how you plant them and when you plant them and how soon you're able to harvest. Okay. I typically plant the zippers can go first uh, just after I'm sure of the last frost. So depending on where you are, they like to grow tall and they can get huge, so they'll need some kind of a lattice. You can grow them up a fence, you can grow them up a pole, you can grow them up just about anything. They are climbers. Mm -hmm. uh, so I plant them, I just make a little hole with my finger an inch or two deep, and drop one or two in there, cover it up, and then about two weeks later, I'll go back again and do the same thing again. Okay, so you do and a you succession can, you can, planting. You can pile them on top yeah. of each other. Okay. And... Uh, and as much water as you can give them, they will take, and they are extremely hardy. I know in Chico I had a problem with uh, an iron deficiency, but that was just about it. But they, they, they are very drought tolerant. They can tolerate uh, fairly sparse soil. Uh, my mother grows them in Southern California in the Mojave Desert, and they, she's just prolific with them. Uh, very little fertilizer. They just go nuts. And... Um, they will take off once the heat comes, and you can start harvesting. If you plant in early April, you should be able to start harvesting around the 4th of July, and they will go until the first frost, and they'll even survive a short frost. So whenever I go to my parents' house at Thanksgiving in the Mojave Desert, at Thanksgiving I can still get them. Mm. I can walk out there. Some will be dry. Some will be that leather hard kind of a kind of a, a state. But I can get them, and I can make myself a lunch or have enough to make enough for the whole family. Usually, that will be that one time, and then it's over. And she'll sort of leave a few out there for me because she knows I like to do it. But in Kansas, they'll be gone before all that. But in Southern California, they'll grow until December sometimes if she'll let them, mm -hmm. and uh, they will produce until they freeze. So they are prolific, and they go nuts. I mean, they get really, they, they get, they're really prolific. When do you know that they're ready to collect in order to dry and store for the next season? Okay, well, uh, much like the normal uh, cow peas that you see, like black-eyed peas, uh, they, the holes will turn purple. And so when they turn purple, you know they're ready. And for some reason, some of them will turn purple and some will turn yellow. Hmm. And either way, that they're fine. And you can just leave them on the vine until they dry. Or you can pick them when they're yellow or purple, and then they'll dry as well. But you run the risk of them molding. If you leave them on the vine and you don't overhead water, they'll dry just fine. Mm -hmm. And if you let them stay on too long, the, uh, the pods will split and they'll drop, right, and just in a, in a natural way. But... Um, so if you're not diligent and you're out there not if you're not out there picking them every day, they will dry on you pretty quick. So you don't have to worry about designating which peas are for drying or whatever. If you just skip a day, yeah. <laughs> you'll be fine. And then, how do you prepare them to eat? Uh, me personally, yeah, uh, I do it. Well, I, I try to do it the old way, but I've been a vegan for the last 25 years, so I don't do anything with animal fat. But uh, I will brown some onion with some garlic and uh, a pepper or two, usually from the garden, whatever I have, something hot, something sweet, something in the middle. 
and I sort of brown them with a little olive oil. And uh, I will add a little honey, a bay leaf, some cracked pepper, and then I will just let them sit and simmer in water. If they are fresh and still uh, supple, uh, it won't take longer than a half an hour. If they're dried, it'll, it will take quite a bit of time. In fact, I'd rather soak them for half a day first and then do it, but they don't take very long to cook, and they're absolutely delicious. If you're a fan of black-eyed peas, you'll like these much better because they hold their texture, and they have a flavor that's slightly less earthy. You're listening to Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Daniel Atkinson, scholar of the African-American diaspora, musician, and avid home gardener. After the break, we'll hear his thoughts on the connection between music, surfing, gardening, and life. We'll be right back. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Before the break, we began our conversation with Daniel Atkinson, teacher, student, writer, scholar of the African-American diaspora and jazz and rhythm and blues music, and avid home gardener. Welcome back. I know I said we would talk about music as well, because for some reason in my mind when you and I first were talking, there was this definite similarity between how music fed you and how gardening and this connection to your family and the soil fed you in a similar way. Is there is there a similarity in your mind? Oh, yes, and I'll add a third, surfing. Okay, good. <laughs> Music, surfing, and gardening are all processes, mm. right? They're all processes that deal with the impermanence of life in all its forms. There's beauty in impermanence. There's pain in impermanence. And, you know, it just is what it is. And it sort of gardening, music, and surfing all helped me to realize and to sort of uh, hone the fact that I can't choose my situation, but I can choose how I react. Okay. Right? And so gardening presents an amazing set of challenges in that you have to find a way to make something grow and thrive, given the context, the type of soil you have, the type of access to sun, the type of heat that's around, the... The, just the overall climate. Like I live in Puyallup in western Washington where there's a very short growing season, right? So then you have to sort of calculate how you're going to find a way to thrive given the conditions that you have. Surfing is very much the same way. You have to paddle out. You have to find your spot. You have to have etiquette in place so that you don't anger the people around you because there's only so many waves coming. And then you have to put yourself in the right position to get up, Right. Uh, musically, it works the same way where you are with a community of people who are negotiating a process, 
that you've all agreed upon. And once you play something, it's out there. You can't take it back. You can't change your mind. You can't do anything. All you can do is know who you are in the context of the moment and express yourself, right? And then that knowing of yourself to express yourself in the way that you think is best is the act of being soulful. So gardening works exactly the same way. Surfing has worked the same way for me in music. And these are things that have kept me, kept me grounded and kept me focused throughout the years because I'm a bit of a squirrel. And if I don't have something to tinker with all the time, I can kind of get a little batty. And as a tinkerer, those three things have really helped me stay focused throughout the years and stay productive and stay happy. I like that. I like the soulful expression of your of yourself. And it sounds like your ancestors would be very proud of your expressing their uh, hand-me-down beans and gardening and the culture of that. I would hope so. I absolutely love them. I love eating them. I love growing them. I love talking about them. Uh, I love looking at them. You know, at the end of the season when I put them in jars, before I find people to give them to, I'll just sit and look at, especially the speckled butter beans. They're so beautiful. They look like they've been painted. Yeah. Thank you so much for being part of the program, Daniel. It's been a pleasure to have you and to hear your stories. And I can just visualize you sitting with your lunch of beans and garlic with your nasturtiums and that hummingbird. <laughs> it's that a beautiful image. Yeah, he was my buddy. He came back uh, for three years in a row. And I've... When I left that apartment, uh, it was I, I was sad because I was leaving an apartment that I really liked, but I was really bummed about leaving that poor hummingbird with nothing to eat. <laughs> oh well, we have to hope he found his way. Oh yeah, I'm sure he did. I mean, they're survivors. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Daniel's point about gardening being a process that ties us more firmly to the energies of life itself, the beauty, the pain, the impermanence, really resonates with me. Maybe this is particularly true this time of year, the Ides of March, the first official day of spring, and the longed-for last frost date all within reach. It's one of several times of year when the cycling of all things is poignantly noted. March brings actual springtime weather to much of the Western Hemisphere, and the official calendar-based spring arrives on March 19th or 20th, depending on your time zone. Interestingly, March was the first month of the earliest Roman calendar. The famed Ides of March, around the 15th of the month, were supposed to have marked the first full moon of the Roman New Year. In traditional Native American cultures, according to the Farmer's Almanac, the full moon of this time of year is known as the full worm moon because it's around this time of year, as daylight hours lengthen, that the soil slowly begins to soften and warm. The worms are able to move around more freely. Above-ground castings attract worm lovers of all sorts, such as spring's robins. This same full moon is also sometimes known as the full sap moon because plants and people alike can attest to the energies once again rising upward with the returning warmth and life of the season. As a girl, I was always told that the Ides of March were a traditional time to direct sow peas out in the garden. According to lunar gardening advocates, planting above-ground crops, including peas, is best done the 16th and the 17th of this month, just before the full moon on the 23rd. Daniel's stories are not just his experiences shared, but they make us far more curious about ours. What is the difference between a pea and a bean? 
Is a crowder pea a pea or a bean? Are sweet peas edible? I had to go look some of this up. Peas, mostly from the genus Pisum, are thought to have originated in the Mediterranean and are also known as English peas, green peas, and field peas. They are cool weather plants and prefer soil that is between 40 degrees and 70 degrees to germinate and in the 60s and 70s to grow. Shell or dry beans include varieties in the genus Fasciolus, originally from the Americas, and in the genus Vigna, which botanists believe originated in Central Africa. These are warm season crops and prefer soils to be consistently above 60 degrees to germinate and even warmer to grow. So while peas might mark spring and beans come with summer, both are attractive and delicious, from their foliage to their flowers to their seeds, fresh or dried. Pea and bean genera are all included in the Fabaceae family of legume plants. They're great at fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere into the soil, and they can survive on lean soils and moderate to low water. The western redbud, Cercis occidentalis, a native legume where I live, is in full bloom just now. Like many of its family members, its saturated, almost iridescent purple pea flowers are sweet spring edibles, and its young green pods are as well. Ironically, the traditional ornamental sweet pea from the genus Lathyrus is poisonous. As Daniel notes, gardening certainly highlights the impermanence of any one individual plant or person, but his very individual shared stories are also living testament to the persistence of cycles, of each spring's return, of each generation of peas and beans sending up optimistic shoots and producing life-supporting and regenerating seeds, of one family's connection from generation to generation across continents even, as a result of their recurring urge to eat, to plant, to enjoy, and to share all of that. Thank you for listening. Join us next week when we speak with Michaela Cauley of the Organic Seed Alliance based in Port Townsend, Washington, and Kaylin Redwood of Redwood Seeds in Manton, California. With them, we will explore even more deeply the processes of growing, saving, and sharing seed and the profound importance of this across the country. I I have to say uh, I believe that Organic Seed Alliance has had a significant impact in increasing awareness of the importance of seed-saving seed production, and we've trained thousands of farmers across the country, but we have not done this work alone. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. Podcasts and photographs can be found weekly at mynspr.org. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.